0: to episode 18 of the Making Margin Podcast. My name is Nick Foy. I'm the founder of Greenway Wealth Advisors. We are a financial planning and investment management firm based in the south end of Charlotte, North Carolina, where today, on the day of our recording, it is a beautiful day. We have fully entered fall now, which Allie is very excited about. Is that true?
1: Yeah, except it's Charlotte, so I don't believe that it's fully fall.
0: It will fully be fall for at least two weeks, no more than three (laughs)
1: Two weeks is,
0: that's you know, that's generous. So we get, I don't know how, but there's this uh, relatively high-priced uh, casual clothing company called Marine Layer. Are you familiar with Marine Layer, Allie? Nope. Um, there's a store right around the corner from our office over there next to the uh, the Jenny's ice cream. I think I walked in one day to return something, actually. Um, but we started getting kind of randomly their catalog, and it's a San Francisco-based company. And it's it said...
1: Uh, People still send catalogs?
0: Yeah, I know. That's that's how I found out about their business was from their catalog. And the catalog said uh, it was like, buy your clothes for fall, which and then it said in parentheses or for every day in San Francisco. Because See, really live. And I read that and I said, Allie should live there for, for the fact that it's ridiculously overpriced.
1: If it didn't cost, you know, forty dollars for a latte, then maybe
0: <laughs> Yeah. exactly. Um, although that's changing a little bit because people are moving out of there right now. But that's another episode for another day.
1: Jeff's here too, by the way.
0: Jeff's here too. What do you think of fall? I love fall. It's a lovely season. So uh, the title of today's podcast episode, episode number 18, is Smells Like Teen Spirit, a look at alternative investments. And Jeff asked why Smells Like Teen Spirits, because we're talking about alternatives and the alternative anthem for an entire generation was by the band Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, on vocals, Smells Like Teen Spirit. Um, Someone suggested to us sort of looking at alternative investments and how they might fit in or not fit into portfolios, and I I thought that was a good idea. So we kind of want to do a rundown on how we think about them. First, we kind of want to define them. So we'll do that here shortly. But for some time now, um, a lot of university endowments, really starting, I think, with the, the Yale endowment model, have started including alternative investments in their portfolios. It's been 15 or 20 years, I guess, maybe a little longer it's been going on, um, as an attempt to diversify risk, increase their return on their portfolio endowments. Um, But what we're finding is that many of them, most of them probably, have been actually unsuccessful in increasing their returns over time. And according to a recent report that will link on our show notes that lack of success is in direct proportion to the percentage of alternative investments in the portfolio. So the question becomes, should individual investors hold alternative assets or are they better off with plain vanilla portfolios? Uh, plain vanilla meaning typical asset classes like stocks and bonds and cash and that sort of thing. Um, so we're gonna have links to, to two different reports that, uh, that kind of discuss this, um, but first, I want to ask. So, Allie is um, an amazing woman. She's intelligent. She does a fantastic job with our clients. She came to us with zero financial sort of background in finance. Is that right, Allie? Would you say that's accurate? Uh,
1: professional financial experience, yes. Professional
0: finance. She personally she does she does just fine because she managed her own fi- finance as well. Um, but as far as like understanding definitions of account types and all this sort of thing, that was not her. her master's degree is in education, and she's a really great educator. Uh, and she's also highly organized, and we appreciate everything that she does for us. But it's not necessarily the finance side that gets her excited. I would say. Yeah. Would you yeah. Agree with okay. So, having said that, I want you to guess what the largest. University endowment is in the country as of the end of 2019. And how much do you think they have? Do you know what an endowment is anyway? I
1: was just going to say, I don't. I think. Okay, let's define <laughs> that.
0: This yeah, is perfect.
1: Is, is it what investors give? Or I guess it wouldn't be an investor in a school, but is it like what people give gifts to colleges, universities?
0: Yeah, it's basically their fund. People give into the endowment fund and it's all the different assets that they have. And so just like how we invest for clients. Um, you know, whoever's investing the endowment for a university, I almost said the name of the university, I'm glad I didn't, whoever is investing the endowment for uh, the Ohio State University has a job then, they have a task to go and maximize their return on investment and minimize risk for the benefit of Ohio State and their students and everything else that the university wants to do. Does that makes sense? Yep. All right, so what institution of higher learning do you think has the largest endowment in the country?
1: Yale. That is a really,
0: really good guess. I said Yale earlier, didn't I? I don't remember. Yeah, they are. That's a really good guess. They're actually the third largest. Harvard. That's correct. Harvard. At the end of 2019, how big do you think the Harvard and how much money do you think they had just sitting in their accounts being invested?
1: I always guess too low. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> there's no there is no wrong i mean there's a lot of every answer is wrong except for the absolute right answer so don't feel bad
1: 500 million
0: 500 million is a is a fair guess you ready for this
1: wait why doesn't jeff have to do any guessing
0: jeff well jeff do you want to he's, have you seen the article yet
1: i haven't seen the article I Okay. how much do you think it's in the the billions i don't remember how many though
0: okay ali you're gonna be shocked Shock and awe. Uh, almost $40 billion, $39 billion in the Harvard endowment. Um, the next largest is the University of Texas system, which is sort of weird. It stands out as like a, one of the few.
1: Wait, uh, why are they spending the money?
0: Well, that's a fair question. That is a really good question to ask, and a lot of people ask that. University of Texas system has a $31 billion endowment, which most state universities don't have that large because they get funding from the state. Wait
1: uh, a second. Did
0: you say that second?
1: Yeah. As just a state school.
0: Yeah. Well, the whole so the whole University of Texas system, all the schools that are related. The third is Yale at thirty billion, then Stanford at twenty-seven billion. Princeton. Um, let's see. Pennsylvania is fourteen billion. MIT is seventeen billion. Uh, and M University system then is 13 billion. Michigan is 12 and a half. Notre Dame is 11, Northwestern's 11, California, University of California system's 11, Columbia blah 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 blah. Um, the so Ohio what you're saying State is
1: there's a lot of money out there.
0: The Ohio State University, 5.2 billion makes the list, which their endowment's grown a ton over the last few years.
1: Um, that just annoys me, like why did I have to spend 30,000 dollars a year in tuition if they had all that money sitting there?
0: Well, I think these are fair questions to ask. Like, yeah. what do colleges actually do with their endowments? And is it sort of just a. a and a why did my dorm rooms have
1: an air conditioning unit? If they, why have, did your
0: daughter, if they had a $5 billion endowment, why couldn't they have put an air conditioner in Alley rooms? It's a good question. Um, endowments for universities also allow them to, you know, like the larger ones are going to be just fine, even through this whole COVID experience, if they have kids that are remote. And kids say, you know what? Maybe I don't want to pay tuition there. I'm going to go somewhere else that I can actually be in person or whatever individually. Harvard, not a big deal. Um, for a school with a tiny little endowment, potentially a really big deal if they don't have in-person learning and people decide to go somewhere else. So these sort of decisions that are a combination of science and health and finance are um, sort of colliding here right now. But anyway, to give you an idea of how much money is out there in these endowments. Um, That gives you a better understanding. Um, All right, so we talked about traditional asset classes. So most of these endowments invest in stocks and bonds and cash. And then they decided a couple decades ago that they wanna go beyond stocks and bonds and cash because they wanna get access to potentially more lucrative investments that will also diversify their portfolios. So it would be like commodities, um, hard real estate, like actual buildings and stuff, something called master limited partnerships, which are like energy investments, hedge funds, private equity. Um, And the question is, in theory, who would be a good fit for these sorts of alternative asset classes? Jeff, what do you think? What what types of people might be a good fit to say, yeah, like it it makes sense to diversify your portfolio beyond stocks and bonds and cash and into these other places?
1: I think, people that have already exhausted kind of the low-hanging fruit, and by that I'm gonna define that as kind of our plain-jane vanilla stocks, bonds, cash. If you've already gotten a really good diversified um, portfolio through that, and you still have all of this extra cash, uh, investable assets that you need to do something with, I think that's when it might begin to make sense.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. I think that um, there are potential benefits in the additional diversification. So we think of diversification as benefiting investors because you have different assets that zig and zag in different amounts at different times uh, is sort of the best way to think about it. So not everything's moving in lockstep, all all the different things you're not necessarily moving in lockstep with each other. Um, And alternatives offer just this other sort of Asset that's not going to move in the same direction at the same time as stocks will and it won't move in the same direction at the same time as bonds um, And so you've got this sort of third option out here um, But there are drawbacks to that um, What do you think Jeff some of the drawbacks that we think about are to Alternatives these types of alternatives specifically
1: Yeah, I mean the biggest drawback is going to usually be the cost um, these you know if you think about like a typical hedge fund two percent is kind of the floor of the fee and when we talk if we talked about a two percent fee on a an etf or a mutual fund um, that's going to be far far higher than any any cost associated with the investment Um, so that that's the big one they are some types of alternatives you can't even get access to unless you're kind of um, really high net worth or a high earner or both. And so there's, there's an access issue there as well. And even if you could get access to it, a lot of times you don't, you know, you're granting over um, the decision-making process to a manager and um, you know, unless you're really, well versed in kind of reading legal documentation things like that you don't know exactly what what you're getting yourself into whereas yeah. with a you know a, a stock index fund of some sort within a couple of clicks on a website you can figure out what exactly the holdings are and what proportion and why they hold those things um, so those are a couple of the, the draw bra- drawbacks: Sure yeah did you
0: did you say anything about illiquidity? I can't if you didn't. Oh no, but that's a good one. Um, I was yeah. going to say that too. Like the idea that you know we can, for most of our, for all of our client portfolios, we can go and just well, except for people that came over with some assets that are illiquid in nature. But I yeah. think like the ability to just click, click trade and have money in your account uh, is generally um, undervalued, and sure. and so a lot of people will try to accelerate their investments into these all types of alternative assets expecting a higher return and not necessarily factoring the illiquidity that comes with a lot of them.
1: Yeah. And I think that just speaks to the point of who it might make sense for. If you have, you know, half a million dollars that you could live without for an extended period of time without knowing what your rate of return would be um, or how long it might be until you see some sort of um, return or be able to get the principal back. Mm -hmm. Um, Unless you can take that risk, uh, it's probably not for you.
0: Yeah. Um, okay, so commodities are one of the one of the potential uh, alternative investments. So let's talk about what a commodity is. So a commodity, something like cattle or livestock, um, cotton, precious metals like gold and silver, and that sort of thing. Uh, currencies, coal, oil, wheat, and corn, and soybeans, and food stuff. So all these different things are the like. It's not necessarily a business itself that owns or develops or produces whatever these things are, but it's the things themselves, and you can buy them just by buying futures contracts. Um, you can basically bet on the direction of the value of these things, and so that will be an example of something that would be an alternative investment, uh, where it's not the business itself, but it's the thing that is, is, has a you know ex- unknown expected rate of return, and somebody thinks that they have some insight into the direction of um, you know, the, uh, the value of whatever those things are. And so they go buy them and then you can suddenly diversify a portfolio. Um, and so that's an example of, of, of an alternative. Um, we talked about real estate, hard real estate, you know, re- actually going and buying a building or investing in land or whatever else, these, these sorts of things, um, uh, private equity. We talked about, um, hedge funds, um, all of these things have an, an increased cost and an increased risk because now if you're doing that instead of buying like a broadly diversified index fund, you are highly dependent on the manager making good decisions. Um, and for the most part, we don't have a ton of you know, history, uh, statistically speaking, about whether or not an individual manager has the ability to make good decisions over a long time period. So you sort of suddenly add in this additional manager selection risk where you're dependent on that. Um, and that's a risk that I, again, I don't think, I think it's really hard to quantify. I don't think people do a great job of actually quantifying that. Um, so anyway, just sort of some, some background and some thoughts on, on how that goes. Um, go ahead.
1: Yeah. I think for me, like with alternatives, we talk about risk as being the thing that you don't see coming And with alternatives, there are lots of things that you are opening up yourself to, to not see coming. Uh, You know, it could be a pandemic, it could be um, some pestilence, uh, you know, something that affects only one thing, one item of the world and, and could be ruinous. So I think that's where like for me, when you kind of went through that list, I'm just thinking concentration, concentration, concentration risk. And then yeah, yeah, and like the fact that it's highly dependent on the person that's making the decisions, the manager, and there aren't really that many of them that can do that for a long period of time. And we don't know until afterwards which ones have actually done it. So yeah. it's not like you know ahead of time who's who's the golden goose. Right.
0: In 2018, sorry, 2019, college and university endowments returned an average of 5.3% net of fees for the 2019 fiscal year. This is according to a study released by the National Association of College and University Business Officers, which I'm sure is a really interesting bunch. Um, That dipped from 8.2% in 2018. And 12.2% in 2017, um, and it was lower equity market returns that led to that decline. So you still got a relatively high correlation, like the stock market broadly, um, and what they're basically saying is, well, we don't want to just take on stock risk, and we have these expectations that have been put on us about what our returns are, and we think we can go get better returns in if we include these other types of assets. These alternative assets in our portfolios. Um, And so we'll go ahead and do that. And essentially what you're doing is you're making a bet that whatever that manager is, is going to be able to make a good decision. What we see is that over the long term, those additional costs um, for investing in these alternative assets um, actually don't end up being compensated. And uh, um, so even on a large scale with really good professional investors or perceived really good professional investors um, that additional cost, they are not necessarily compensating, you know, compensating their clients for that their clients in this case being, you know, university endowments. Um, some of them are, but ahead of time, it's really hard to determine which ones are going to be those that are able to, to, to do that consistently.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, it's hard for them to keep up when the markets are going well. So, you basically say anytime that the markets are going well, you're losing out all these extra costs. And can they make up for that in a down market? That's historically, that's when, or at least in their marketing materials, that's what they would say is that, you know, yeah, we're protecting you against the downside. But, you know, you kind of have to look at it as what's the cost of that? and does it make sense in the the long run because these i mean these are long-term investments they're not when you talk about numbers like that they're not just trying to make payroll next month so
0: Allie, let me ask you this you ready Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you have two choices you can either have and they'll be equally valued so let's say you got fifty thousand dollars and that fifty thousand dollars you can either have a field of cattle or a equivalent number of shares of amazon.com stock, which one would you rather have?
1: I guess Amazon, but that's very diversified either.
0: (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, uh, yeah. With, with any of those like individual things, um, I think that's a great answer because the reality is that like, um, with neither of them do we have like an expected rate of return, right? Like we can plug in how we think either of them should be valued based on our expectations. Um, but the reality is that there are so many things that are going to affect the value of those that are complete unknowns. Um, and so the, you know, I, th- I think the best answer, and I didn't ask you this, so it's not a fair question, but well, I want a little bit of both of them, right? Like I want to offset the risk. Of owning one thing by owning something else that's probably going to move in a very different direction. Now, if I only had fifty thousand dollars, probably wouldn't buy either of those things. Um, but you know, the, the idea being that how do you say increase your diversification, just like you said, in a really low-cost way, so that I'm owning assets that I've you know expect to increase in value over time, but I'm not taking on so much risk on any single asset, so that if I'm wrong, um, it's I'm ruined. I think you used the root earlier, Jeff Ruinous. Um, and I think that most people don't necessarily need the additional diversification, I'm sorry, the, um, the additional benefits that that you know, diversification into alternative assets brings. Um, it's probably a harder thing if you're at a fancy country club with other people that have what they consider to be really great ideas. To just say well i have a long only low cost broadly diversified global portfolio and i'm just kind of capturing the market return that doesn't hold up real well um, you know in the locker room before around a round of golf when other when other other people there have really great ideas about whatever you know they the next big thing is um, but i think the question is like are we looking for something that works well there or are we looking for something that's that's effective um, and our answer is generally well. Let's go for the effective investment option instead of necessarily that one that um, you know brings the uh, brings everybody around for a, a really great conversation about whatever our idea is.
1: Yeah, uh, it's kind of back to the episode we did on investing is boring. Yeah, um, it should be. And um, you know, if we kind of zoom out to the planning perspective you know, why, if you can answer why it is that we invest, it's not to, you know, set the high score in returns. It's to be able to have the funds available to do the things that we've ahead of time decided are important in our lives. Yeah. And so if we kind of take it through that lens, the additional risk um, is, not, is not worth it. Our um, clients that do the right things and, and save and give the way that they want to, um, they're doing just fine and they don't need to take on all this additional risk to try to um, gain outsized um, returns. That's right. All
0: right. Allie, last question for you. You ready?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> You're such a good sport. <laughs> um, all right. We've been talking about a little bit in our client meetings lately. We put in our quarterly letter. What is the asset class that our clients most regret having owned this year?
1: Um, uh, In real estate.
0: Yes. Via REITs, real estate investment trusts. Good job. Um, So the closest that we get to this sort of alternative, what you consider alternative um, is accessing uh, commercial real estate via what are called REITs, real estate investment trusts, which is just a way for um, real estate holding companies to um, to essentially uh, create you know uh, uh, segment themselves in order to be able to raise capital to do whatever it is that they do. So if you're a REIT, then you got to pay a certain relatively high percentage of your income uh, out to your shareholders. Um, and now it's really easy to access real estate as an asset class via, funds and ETFs that are really low cost. Um, we typically like to have those in IRAs and for people's 401Ks because they have their relatively high income. So if you put them in kind of that happy basket that's tax protected, um, we can avoid the taxation from that income on a year to year basis. Um, the global real estate benchmark, if we just look at REITs for the last 10 years, was 5.58% annually. It was much higher than that before 2020 hit. And what's happened to commercial real estate since then is it's sort of fallen off a cliff. Turns out that, you know, pandemics and a lot of people in an office don't mix. Pandemics and malls don't mix very well. So these places that, um, you know, have a a higher expected return over time based on um, their historical return anyway, um, have just gotten hammered. So year to date is as of the end of the third quarter, September 30th, the benchmark for uh, global real estate is down 19.23% which is for sure the worst performing asset class among those that our clients are invested in. Um, and the reality is we think that commercial real estate will come back someday that people want to go back to the office and be, be together and be around each other. We don't necessarily know when um, we have it as a diversifier within the portfolio. And the reality of diversification is there's always something that you regret holding Um, We just want that thing that we regret holding to be something that's still liquid so that if someone needs money for whatever that thing is, it's easy to sell it. It's easy to rebalance a portfolio um, and we're minimizing their costs of ownership. When you actually go and own that hard asset, specifically real estate, um, it becomes a really expensive thing to own, um, whether it's residential or commercial. And anyone who owns a house or a rental home uh, or an office or whatever knows that there are a lot of cost inputs to that. And so that, that just reduces what our expectations are from a return perspective. So we like having um, some access to what is sort of a, a alternative investment. Um, but again, maintaining liquidity, reducing cost, and holding in the right place to minimize taxes. Um, and those really are the things, again, that we can control, our costs and, and liquidity and taxes and diversification. Um, and if we control for those, I think we're in good shape uh, over the long
1: term. So
0: I think that's it. You got something jeff
1: i was just going to say like publicly traded reits very important um, for that liquidity portion um, right good point touched on there at the end but because we've seen the flip side there there are non-publicly traded reits out in the world and um you know if you needed fast access to cash or anything like that good luck
0: yeah and we've had some clients that have come over and been generally advisors will get pretty significant commissions for selling non-traded reits and um, it's something that we, you know, recommend avoiding because there's all this cost with expected return that is, uh, it's a big question mark as far as like what what we can expect because you're investing generally in a small subset of the real estate market um, and it's illiquid. And uh, uh, so there are all these additional risks that we just don't know if they'll be comped. So Cool. Well, thank you for joining us for our episode number 18, Smells Like Teen Spirit, uh, a look at alternative investments. Um, We'd love your feedback. If you have it for us, feel free to send us an email to info at greenwaywealth.com for more information on how to get a hold of us. You can make an appointment if you want to have conversations about this or anything else related to your money uh, at greenwaywealth.com.